0: Okay, how you doing, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. You know, this this is a podcast. We like to cover a lot of the San Diego County news headlines, offer commentary on a lot of different issues going on in San Diego. And, you know, I like to look at this through my own lens of um, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is really sort of the... The higher purpose of what this podcast is all about. So, thanks for joining me. Uh, welcome. You know, this is episode number 324 of the John Riley Project. We're live streaming on YouTube and Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, so, thanks for joining me. Uh, we got a lot going on today. So, we're going to talk about a big fraud case in the in, in the city of my hometown of Poway, where a, a guy like ripped off social security and veteran benefits is a big story. We'll chat about that. We're gonna talk a little bit about some of the um, the whole concept of government as picking winners and losers, and I think there's some interesting insight in this when we look at the California state budget, but also some of the you know things that go on here in my hometown of Poway. We'll talk a little bit about Encinitas. Uh, there was a tragic uh, uh, accident with a teenager on an electric bike or an e-bike. I have some thoughts there. We'll talk about that. Um, a lot of interesting comments in the Voice of San Diego uh, talking about Mayor of Coronado Richard Bailey and his future, as well as former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. We'll talk a bit about that, a bunch of proposed tax increases that are likely coming our way. Um, then, uh, San Diego County Board of Supervisors Jim Desmond uh, did an op ed recently talking about congestion pricing just an, another scheme SandAG is cooking up to make it more and more expensive to drive a car in San Diego County and thus you know subsidize mass transit we 'll talk about that uh, there 's been some new developments in the um, the sewage that 's pouring out into the Pacific Ocean from Tijuana that's really affecting Imperial beach and Coronado. And then finally, Todd Gloria with a, a new wel- corporate welfare scheme in San Diego makes you wonder about priorities, spending money on event promotion um, and subsidizing corporations rather than fixing our darn roads. So we'll talk about that too. So, wow, a lot on the table. Thanks for joining me. Um, it's been a few weeks since I've had one of my uh, San Diego County news updates um, gosh, I'm just so busy working on my other podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, and we cover all the sports all across America. That podcast is just blowing up. Uh, just really, it's a lot of work to keep up with all of this, especially all the post- uh post-podcast editing that I do. But um, yeah, I, I missed last week, just, you know, life got in the way. And then the week before that, I I did my interview with Ed Franklin. It was great to have Ed on here. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to check out Ed's podcast, uh, Ed Franklin No Limits, another local guy here in town, does a great job. So Ed, thanks for joining me a few weeks ago here on the John Riley Project. Okay, so um, let's dive in and let's start with this initial story. And this just is interesting to me on a couple of different angles. So the, the headline in the San Diego Union Tribune is that a Poway man's mother died in 1990 and he accepted $830,000 of benefits in her name for thirty two years you know, and this came out of her social security fund. It came from the Veterans Administration fund. It was just a huge fraud case that spanned over three decades and so this guy here in my hometown of Poway, defrauding the federal government now he 's come clean he's you know has to actually give up his house so he can generate enough money to repay um, the money that he essentially stole um, but I mean, it's just utterly outrageous, right? And so... Yeah, on one level, you're upset about this because people defrauding, um, you know, social security, which everyone, you know, really wants for their retirement. And, you know, I'm getting closer and closer to that age where I'm going to need it. But this is to me, I see this as just more evidence that the system itself is crumbling. The system itself is fiscally unsustainable, um, especially if you count a lot of these fraud cases that are piling in here as well. So this, I mean, I I could go down the deep rabbit hole on Social Security. I'll spare you of it. But, you know, my summary statement is is it's an immoral, terrible policy um, that essentially is a wealth transfer from the young to the old and often from the poor to the rich. And the system itself is going to be unable to deliver uh, benefits to Social Security recipients in about 10 years. Then what's going to happen? So, I mean federal government's got a terrible problem on their hand. And anytime someone comes forward with a plan to, you know, essentially restructure or, um, you know, revise the way social security is done, they just get raked over the coals and tarred and feathered in the public media. So, I mean, there's a time bomb coming here and it's becoming an ele- in the next 10 years. So get ready for it. But yeah, it's, isn't it crazy though that my hometown of Poway You know, it's a great city. I mean, I've lived here now since 1996 and a great place to raise a family, a great school system, you know, at least academically, a very good school system. Um, but it seems like we're always in the news for the wrong reasons. If it's not a billion dollar bond, it's a water crisis or it's just something else that's going on in our town. And usually you think there'd be more good news coming out of Poway, but this is just another kind of a crazy event. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move on. I want to talk. Secondly about this the situation with the California budget, and you know there's a there 's a local angle to this you know, uh, and I like to keep my podcast local, but just broad brush there was this um, there's another article this was in Cal matters and it was posted online by Chris Cruz, who is a a local Palohegan here in my hometown, kind of a community activist, likes to, you know, generate discussion and sometimes activism around certain local issues, and she posted this article, "Winners and Losers in the California Budget," and it was interesting to me. Um, now, you know, we're wondering who's winning and who's losing, you know, in the California budget, you can go through this. It's interesting. The, the, you know, recipients of, um, of covered California, you know, these are people that are getting subsidies for healthcare. They're winning Home buyers are winning because they keep getting subsidies to buy houses, which by the way, is distorting our housing marketplace and causing a housing crisis. In my opinion, there are losers in this budget. You know, people that are pushing for climate change are upset about this. Um, you know, they're, they're cities that want more money to address homeless. They're not getting as much as they want. They're upset about that. Um, even in education, there's sort of a mixed bag going on here. In K through 12, they're getting more money. They're getting an 8.22% cost of living increase. So our local school district should be ecstatic about that. But on the other hand, they're cutting a $200 million, you know, grant for arts and music. But didn't we just vote on a proposition to provide more funding for arts and music in our California schools? I think we did. And then, you know, transit agencies are going to get $5.1 billion over four years because, you know, all this mass transit is facing a fiscal cliff. We're going to get into this a little bit when we talk about Jim Desmond and congestion pricing. But essentially, ridership of mass transit is going down. The cost to you know provide all these trolleys and subways and and trains and buses is really expensive and getting more expensive and don't get me started on the California bullet train either which I don't even know if they've laid any rail for that in the first place but they're ended up getting not as much money as they want so there's a lot of you know you look at the California budget and remember they used to say we were always in a surplus well now we're in a deficit and they've got to make some tough decisions and you know here we have Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, many people suspect he might be the next president of the United States. I mean, especially if Biden drops out and Trump implodes. And, you know, a lot of people are are saying that that's one of the reasons why Newsom has been so aggressive attacking DeSantis right now, because at some point they figure that Biden is going to step down, citing health reasons or family reasons, and Gavin Newsom would be the, 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 the guy that would kind of take over. It wouldn't be Vice President Harris. It would be Newsom. And the Democrats are seeing that maybe Trump is going to, you know, with all this crisis going on with his, his uh, affairs, you know, both financial and personal, et cetera, he may implode. It may end up being DeSantis and Newsom. And I think in that case, Newsom would probably win. Uh, if for nothing else, he'd have the best hair. <laughs> but, but this invited an interesting question. I thought I'd talk about it in the podcast. And this is where we got kind of to get a little bit more local is when, um, you know, Chris Cruz, who, again, I respect, she 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 and I don't always agree on things, but she really likes to generate a lot of discussion. And, you know, this headline said winners and losers in the California budget. And I made a comment. I go, well, isn't that what government always does? Government policies The way business is done in government today is they pick winners and losers. You know, usually there's some distortion in the market that's caused by lobbyists to get federal or excuse me, get government officials to vote one way or another on a particular bill that rewards some at the expense of others. I mean, we see that in our hometown of Poway where there was a flood of money coming into our local elections to prop up developers because, you know, developers wanted to, I guess, donate money either to pro-building candidates or into PACs against anti-development candidates or in other ways they wanted to find ways to offer charitable donations to politicians that support development by helping out their their, uh, their charitable causes like Steve Voss's Candles for Candlelight, or even what's going on with La Mesa Vice Mayor Colin Parent and his uh, Circulate San Diego. He's getting donations from corporations that are pushing for more development. But that's what ends up happening with all these policies. And it led to an interesting discussion because here in the city of Poway, the local government spent what was it, four? I think Chris said $4 million to incentivize Toyota to move across the street. We have a Toyota dealership in Poway. And that eventually kind of cleared space so they can build a Lowe's store, you know, a home improvement hardware, uh, home improvement store. And you're thinking, this is crazy. (laughs) You know, why are taxpayers, you know, people like us in Poway that are paying crazy property taxes? I mean, you can question the dollar... I mean, you could question the percentage we pay in property taxes, but the dollar amount we pay is a lot because home value is a lot. And we're spending money on sales tax, you know, by shopping in our hometown of Poway. And then we see this money is just like handed over to one of the local auto dealerships just to get them to move across the street so they can accommodate a different corporation. Now, is that government picking winners and losers? I think it is. Um, and, And there's so many other examples of this. I mean, we can go on and on. Where there are all these distortions that one group benefits at the expense of the other. Now, in my opinion, you know we shouldn't be looking at the through the lens of winners and losers. I mean that's how Donald Trump sees the world. You know he's a winner and you're a loser, and that's how he likes to frame discussions. I like to frame it in in the case of win win. Those are the kinds of things I like, where two people or two parties or two groups or two companies or whatever it is get together and cooperate and trade. And I think that is where we need to go because- Right now, I mean, look at our housing crisis in, in San Diego. Talk about winners and losers. For the longest time, the NIMBYs have been the winners. The NIMBYs have been the ones that say, hey, don't build it in my backyard. Go build it over there. you know. And they have been funding and supporting political candidates that support that cause. And by preventing that development, they've seen their home values rise. Not only because there's no development nearby, but also because it promotes scarcity of housing. And there's huge demand in San Diego. And when there's not enough supply, then prices go up. And so NIMBYs have been winning, but at the expense of other people, like first-time home buyers or families that want to move up or, you know, just in general, people that want to buy houses because they've gotten so expensive in California. You know, so a lot of times that's what government policies do, you know, and they they try to sell it as, oh, this is for the common good. This is to help people. But it's usually a scheme to help those that are donating money to get those policies approved. I mean, consider uh, college education. We've seen tuition rates rise dramatically, far greater than the than the the inflation rate. (laughs) Inflation has been pretty bad lately. But still, tuition rates keep rising and rising. Why? Well, because there are all these incentives that are given to encourage people to go to college. Government offers loans to students so they can go to college. Sounds good, right? Sounds like it's coming from a warm place in your heart. But ultimately what that does is, is that they build more and more, excuse me, they have more and more students going to these schools to the point that the schools can't handle it and they have to restrict the number of people they let in. And as a result, demand exceeds supply and prices go up. So again, winners and losers. And here in California for the longest times, the winners were a lot of times international students that were coming here because they, they were able to get in. And they were happy to get in. They had to pay a higher price. But it often came at the expense of of Californians who were paying state sales taxes that fund and subsidize our University of California system and our Cal State system and our community college system. And their kids couldn't get in. And California kids end up going to schools outside of California. So it's just amazing to me, this, this notion of winners and losers and how government pulls this off. Another great example um, are tariffs. Uh, you, you know, we, we hear this from not only the MAGA right, but we also hear this from the Bernie Sanders left, where they'll say, we need to protect American jobs. We need to protect American workers. So we've got to keep those cheap imports away from America. We need, to, we need to put tariffs on those imported goods. Or they even kind of create, in some cases, Trump, you know lies and says China needs to pay for these tariffs but they don't the people that pay for the tariffs are Americans and what they do is is tariffs are a thing that benefits the very few at the expense of the very many tariffs reward corporations that don't want competition from overseas companies and as a result we get higher prices either from domestic suppliers or higher prices because of the tariff on the imported goods winners and losers baby formula is another crazy one as well remember we had a baby formula crisis about I don't know was it six months ago a year ago because a, a a baby formula manufacturing plant suddenly they had problems they couldn't produce enough product and then the manufacturing facility broke down I think they had some you know health or safety issues and they had to shut the thing down for a period of time but you know there's only like three or four you know major baby formula manufacturers in the United States. But you figure, okay, well, no big deal. If one of the big ones in America goes down, then we can just import more from Canada or we can import more from Europe. I mean, after all, they've got really good baby formula in Europe, right? But there are bans on imports. There are limits on how much baby formula can come into America from, uh, from Canada because they want to protect the big dairy industries, And so, again, winners and losers You know, so Americans got penalized Especially mothers with children got penalized They were scrambling to find baby formula They were the losers The winners were the the corporate executives That are in those very few baby formula companies they the ones that have been winning for decades Because they've been able to limit their competition So... I mean, just so many examples of this. It's just nuts. But um, it was an interesting conversation, and I thank Chris Cruz for bringing it up. You know, she usually does bring up some good discussion topics that have a local Poway angle to it. This was a little bit more broad in scope, but there's still definitely, I think, the Poway auto dealership issue is a good example of it. Um, Yuri Bolin on the live stream says, with the California deficit, I guess the French wine costs more than Governor Newsom thought. Yeah, Newsom he's like Teflon, right? I mean, he's just he generally always comes off really good even when he gets caught at the French Laundry, you know, during COVID when all the restaurants were shut down, you remember that? The lockdowns. And then he had a private event at a restaurant in Napa Valley at the French Laundry. And which is a which is a really high-end exclusive restaurant, not a laundromat. Um yeah, so Newsom is, you know, he was touting the California surplus for so long. I mean, that was largely driven by six trillion dollars of money that was dumped into the economy, much much of it in California during the COVID pandemic, and people went out and spent it like crazy, and tax revenues went cha-ching for the state of California. Well, that tidal wave of free money is in our rearview mirror. But the California budget, they keep spending and spending, and they're spending like it was 2020 or 2021, and now all of a sudden they've got a deficit. So yeah, you're, he's he, Gavin Newsom's realizing that things are going to be a lot more expensive, that's for sure. Okay, um, let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about e-bikes, but before we get to that... Um, let me just say, first of all, thank you. If you're watching on the live stream, um, I invite you to participate. We'll take all of your questions and comments in the live stream. Um, just drop your comment on in Facebook or on Twitter. I'll get it on my screen. We'll get you involved in the podcast, kind of like a talk radio program for the 21st century. Um, and you know, if you want to learn more about my podcast, you can go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. And there I've got all my former episodes, previous episodes. You know, this is episode number three hundred and twenty-four. So I got all the previous episodes there. Blog articles, uh, ways you can contact me, connect on social media. If you want to be a guest on this, you know, you can reach out to me there. You have some questions. If you want to donate to the podcast and support it financially, you can do that too. Just go to johnrileyproject.com Okay, let's um, move down the list, and I want to talk about this e bike issue and. Um, I mean, e-bikes are exploding. I I drive around and I see e-bikes all over the place, Um, and you know, young kids, you know, teenagers and adults and older people on bikes. And generally, I think it's been a really great trend. But there was a tragic case that happened in Encinitas where a 15-year-old boy was killed on an e-bike. And you know, this kid was a high achiever. He was an athlete. He was a ninth grader at the San Diego Academy um, out there in Encinitas, and. He, was, he, he went to change lanes and he, you know, he, I don't know if he went head on into a van or he got sideswiped by a van on the road and he lost his life. And it's just tragic. Well, this kind of brings up a lot of people are saying, well, what do we do about e-bikes? You know, and immediately you're, you're seeing people kind of get all hot and bothered about it. We need more regulations on e-bikes and we need to do this or do that. Well, you know, e-bikes are exploding. Um, I, I think they're a great innovation. I mean, I've, I've been toying with the idea of getting one myself. It's, uh, it just makes biking a lot easier. It gets more people involved. It gets people out and about in the community. And I think as our cities become, let's say, less rural or even less suburban and become more and more urban, I think people are going to start to use bikes even more to get around town, you know, to do various errands. And e-bikes are a great way to do that. So it's been, I mean this is this is a beautiful thing. I mean, the e-bike revolution started a number of years ago, but they're just exploding everywhere and you see them in the form of mountain bikes, in form of road bikes. Some of these look like these cool off-road BMX bikes that are e-bikes. And some of these kids, man, you see them flying down the street. Sometimes two of them on one bike going down the road. I will say though that there are some e-bike riders that are pretty out of control, and it makes you wonder what should be done with all of these e-bikes because kids love them. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, heck, I remember when I was a kid, I was you know a huge bike rider uh, back in the day. I raced BMX, but I also um, I remember my stepsister came into town once and she had a moped. And I rode the, and I was like 14 or 15, just like this young man that was tragically killed in Encinitas. And I would drive that all around my hometown. And I thought it was the greatest thing. And here I am, I'm driving, and I don't, you know, I know how to ride a bike. I mean, especially a a motor. This is like a a very limited kind of a motorcycle, it's like a moped. It's so much fun to ride. And, but you know, when you're 14 or 15, do you know all the traffic rules and et cetera? Most don't. Um, but I think what what needs to happen here is we need more bike lanes. And, and we've talked about that here in this podcast. And we're seeing this in San Diego quite a bit, more bike lanes. In some cases, on four-lane roads, they're making two of those lanes hybrid lanes that cars and bikes share. That still gets a bit dangerous. Um, you know, I've seen some communities where there's a road and then there's a curb, and, and then there's some landscaping, and then next to it, it's not necessarily a sidewalk, but it's like a bike lane, and it's just for bikes. I think the more of that we can put into, you know, the way we plan our cities and do development, it would be a good thing, um, especially as more biking, more e-biking is is coming forward and as our suburbs are becoming more urban, and I, I think that would be a really positive mood, uh, move, but... At the same time, though, I think police need to be aware and be ticketing uh, people that are on e-bikes that aren't following the rules. I mean, I think that's reasonable um, because it's they're dangerous for people that are involved. You know, So you know, as an automobile driver, you've got to be really aware of e-bike riders. And as an e-bike rider, you've got to be driving or riding defensively. So I think as long as e-bike riders are following the rules, they're staying in the bike lane, um, they're on the trails. You know, we should be like, thumbs up, man. That's great. But terrible to see this story that happened in Encinitas. I, I just fear when this happens, when there's a terrible death of a young person on an e-bike, that that's going to lead to crackdowns on e-bikes that are going to make them more difficult to ride and more regulations and more limits. I just rather th- we approach it differently, that we encourage e-biking But we do it in as safe of a way as possible, because ultimately it's a really good thing for the individuals riding it and for people all over our neighborhoods. Okay, let's uh, let's move on down the list. Uh, John Riley Project covering a lot of local San Diego uh, issues. We welcome your thoughts and comments. I want to talk a bit about Richard Bailey and Richard Bailey is the mayor of Coronado. Um, He's a Republican. He's one of the very few Republicans in the county of San Diego uh, that's a mayor. I think Richard Bailey in Coronado, of course, Steve Voss in Poway. I think Amita Saravala, who's the um, president of the Poway Democratic Club, said that the mayor in Lakeside was a Republican. That makes sense, given that demographic. But all the other mayors in San Diego County are all Democrats. But Richard Bailey's an interesting guy because he's been in the news a lot. And you figure, you know, Coronado, nice little sleepy village there, wonderful place to visit. Uh, Gosh, if you're fortunate enough to own real estate there, you're doing pretty well. It's a beautiful community. In fact, I've taken my bike over the Coronado Bridge and just rode around Coronado. It's just spectacular. Um, And there's a lot of really good bike lanes there too. But what's interesting with him is that he has had a very forward social media presence over the last six or seven months. And I've been following him on social media and he's coming out, you know, just the mayor of San Diego and excuse me, the mayor of Coronado. And he's not necessarily, well, at the time he wasn't running for anything. He was just the mayor of a city in the county, but he was just being very forthright coming out, talking about countywide issues, statewide issues, and really going way beyond the scope of Coronado. And it caught my attention. And a lot of the stuff he was saying I liked and a lot of the video content that he had, he had developed it into these shorts, kind of like what I do on my YouTube and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. He was doing the same thing. Um, These little 60 second bites that were either from a podcast, from an interview or just him you know, commenting on a variety of topics. And so you're always wondering what's going on with this guy. What's he planning? What's he cooking up? And the Voice of San Diego had a really interesting article. Scott Lewis, who's the editor there, does a great job. And in his one of his politics segments, and this was from um, June 24th, he said Richard Bailey is running for something. And I think we've all kind of suspected that. And he's been sending out mailers to homes across the county touting a San Diego comeback um, the latest featuring pictures of Bailey, the mayor of Coronado, a Republican gazing out over the ocean while he rolls his sleeves up and he's got a solution for San Diego County. So he kind of makes you wonder what he's going to do. Well, he's been plotting to run for the County Board of Supervisors. So District 3 is the, is the district that he's in. And that's currently occupied by a Democrat, Tara Lawson Remer or Remer. And this is an area that's most of the coastal areas of, the, of, of San Diego County. It used to previously kind of gerrymander up into Escondido, but now it's almost exclusively along the coast. And it has a 12-point Democratic advantage. But now Richard Bailey's saying, hey, I think I might have a shot here. And he's jumping in. Now, these are areas that overwhelmingly voted for Biden, voted for Newsom, and currently have a Democrat there in District 3 for the County Board of Supervisors. So keep an eye on Richard Bailey. Now, meanwhile, Mayor Kevin Faulkner, former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Faulkner, he's also thinking of running as well. And they interviewed, um, they interviewed the existing supervisor, um, Tara Lawson Remmer, pardon me, a space on her name, Tara Lawson Remmer. And they said, well, what do you think about these potential competitors? And she was intrigued by Richard Bailey. And, you know, he's a big gun, gun rights guy, you know, and she certainly wanted to debate him on that and some housing issues. Um, so interesting to see how that might play out. But once the, the moment Kevin Faulkner was raised, she apparently lit up and said, oh, I'd love to run against that guy. And she said, it's clear to me um, Oh, excuse me. I'm reading off the wrong section. He says, uh, she said, it's shocking to me. Anyone would think he, um, Kevin Faulkner, was a viable candidate. As mayor, he made a deal at 101 Ash Street where his friend made off with almost $10 million while the city got stuck with millions in losses and they had to borrow to pay it off. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if Kevin Faulkner ran for the board of supervisors, I don't think he'd be successful. Um, he was, you know, was he successful as a mayor in San Diego? I mean, that's debatable. He, he's kind of a moderate Republican, kind of middling. He didn't really stand for a lot. I mean, one of the things he really got on board with was being a Yimby rather than a NIMBY. I like that. And then remember he ran for governor in California and he was sort of the great hope of the GOP and he got smoked by Gavin Newsom and by all the, I think, did he even make the finals, uh, in the general election? I'm not sure if he even did. So is he going to run? I don't know, maybe. Uh, But, you know, Richard Bailey is thinking about it as well. And Richard Bailey was taking shots at Kevin Faulkner. and He said, it's clear to me that the regional problems we face from homelessness to crime to the unaffordability of housing is due to years of bad policymaking. I don't have confidence that current or former regional leaders— you know, hint, hint, Kevin Faulkner, are up to the task of addressing these issues in a meaningful way. Um, I haven't made my decision, but I'm strongly considering running for the County Board of Supervisors. I think he already is now. But yeah, so, you know, we've got an election coming up for District 4 in the San Diego County Board of Supervisors starting in August. That's the one to take over for the disgraced um, Nathan Fletcher and they're going to have a replacement election there. That's a district. Is it district four or am I district two? I'm getting them all confused. Uh, District, it's district four, I think. And then district three, this is the other one. This is the one that Richard Bailey's getting involved. So keep an eye on this guy. I, I think it's pretty interesting. Now, in this article, in the Voice of San Diego, Scott Lewis's editorial. He commented on a lot of other things that were interesting, and apparently there's a lot of a lot more tax increases that are being organized to potentially get on the ballot. And um, you know, Mayor Todd Gloria in San Diego and, and Councilman Ra- Raul Camp- Campillo are working on a half cent sales tax increase in the city of San Diego. Um, SANDAG is looking at a half cent um, increase to fund more mass transit. So get ready. I mean, we're already seeing that in some cities in the state of California, the sales tax rate is over 10% because there's a base level by the state. Then the county adds a layer. And then each individual cities also add a layer. And when you add it all up, many cities in California are over 10% sales tax. It's crazy. And so A lot of these guys are plotting and scheming to find out ways to do this. Now, you would think that their revenue should be going up pretty substantially because home values are going up and therefore property tax revenue should be increasing. And all the sales tax revenue that's coming in already, um, that's been increasing as well, you know, as we've recovered in the economy after the pandemic, but- You know, they want more and they want more and they want more. So, you know, look over your shoulder because it's coming. Um, But let's keep an eye on this. Richard Bailey, kind of an interesting guy. You know, he's just sort of positioning himself. He's a political animal for sure. Um, There are things about him I don't necessarily support, um, but there are things about him I do like. You know, it's just a mixed bag like most politicians. But let's keep an eye on him. And he is an interesting guy, in my opinion, because he's one of the few Republicans. You know, say what you will about either party, but San Diego is overwhelmingly Democrat. So usually when Republicans run for higher office lately, they've been getting smoked. So is that going to be the future of Richard Bailey? We're going to see. Okay. Okay. Um, before we go further, um, I want to get and talk a little bit about Jim Desmond and congestion pricing, and then we're going to talk about Imperial Beach, and and I got our whole you know community forum, San Diego Community Forum, where I respond to social media comments, and I'm very happy to respond to your live stream comments. If you have thoughts and opinions on any of these issues, just type them in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll get you involved. Um, and if you want to learn more about some of the other things we're doing, you know, I talk about Poway a lot because I live in Poway, and we started this podcast by interviewing a lot of the political candidates in my hometown of Poway. I created a store called PowayStore.com. You go there, got all kinds of Poway merch, coffee mugs and T-shirts and sweatshirts and all kinds of stickers and fun things there. If you go to PowayStore.com, you can check it out. Okay, let's move on and talk about County Supervisor Jim Desmond, and- I've commented on him a few other times as well. He's been very outspoken about the homelessness crisis, saying that housing first doesn't work. He's one of the Republican minority guys at the county level. And he came out with this op-ed. I saw it in the Escondido Times Advocate and it was about congestion pricing. And in his op-ed that he wrote, or perhaps one of his staff members ghost wrote it for him, he said, we've known for a while now that Sandag which is the, you know the San Diego Association of Governments. The federal government and the state of California have been looking to implement a per mile tax. Yeah, we've we've heard a lot about that. A lot of people are really afraid of that. Um, now in general I I I buy in on that conceptually. You know, if you pay for the if you use the roads, you should pay for the roads and if you use the roads, you should pay for them in proportion to how much you use them. So a per mile tax makes sense to me conceptually. The question is, is how would they implement it? Now, for the longest time, they've, been having, they've had an indirect per mile tax by using the gas tax. But that's you know still a imperfect model because on one hand, electric vehicles don't pay gas taxes. Although as an EV owner myself, I pay a much greater amount in my California car registration fee every year by the way. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, but also for the longest time, you know, we we now have seen greater efficiency of vehicles. And so for some vehicles, they use a lot less gas and therefore pay a lot less gas tax than other vehicles that are gas guzzlers that are paying a lot more. So it's not really optimized on a per mile, but it's sort of roughly kind of in the ballpark. Well, now they're talking about this per mile fee. So that's one thing. And, and people have been worried how they're going to do that. What are they going to do? Are they going to put like a GPS tracking device on your car? And people are concerned about that because of privacy. Um, you know, people said, well, maybe they'll just inspect your odometer every time you register your car. It's not a bad idea, but you know, there's concerns about odometer fraud. I heard one proposal was to put a tax on tires. And I thought that was an interesting idea, but the downside of that is, is that people drive their cars all over the United States. And you know, should you be paying an extra per mile fee to the San, San Diego Association of Governments when over half of your driving is outside the county? That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be fair. So uh, there's a lot of interesting proposals on how to do it. Um, but I like the idea. But well, now it's, it's going to another level here with this idea of congestion pricing. So according this, and again, I'm quoting from Jim Desmond's op-ed, according to reports, uh, um, LA Metro, Los Angeles metropolitan area, is preparing to release a blueprint for congestion pricing, meaning that motorists will have to pay for the privilege of using freeways sandag is looking to do something similar at over 800 miles of san diego county freeway lanes so we've heard about this congestion pricing in new york city too in fact about a year and a half our family was in london Uh, we we went on vacation in the uk we had a great time by the way and there's a congestion fee in, in london where you know they want to keep cars outside of certain high congested areas and if you go into those areas they ding you They charge you a higher tax. And Jim Desmond's upset about this. He's like, what? You know, we're already paying taxes, income taxes, gas taxes, property taxes that go and are used to fund roads and freeways. And now they want to tax us again on that. And I think that's a fair criticism. And they want to use the money to subsidize more mass transit, you know, because there's a fiscal cliff coming with mass transit because ridership is going down and expenses are going up as they build more and more infrastructure, but there's less and less people using it. I mean, when you're driving down the road and if you see the San Diego trolley, I challenge you, look inside the, the, uh, the trolley cars and ballpark what percentage of those cars are full. Every time I've checked, it's like 20%, maybe 33 on a busy day. And there are exceptions, like, you know, when the Padres are playing at Petco and or when San Diego State is up at VAS Arena, you know, they'll all pile in for an event. But in terms of just like regular commuters, when I see it, it's, a, it's pretty low. I challenge you to do the same. I do the same thing with buses. It's just kind of my thing. I'll just look inside a kind of ballpark. Hey, how many of those seats look like they're occupied? And it's always a really small percentage. So should these motorists be paying more money? to subsidize mass transit. I mean, Jim Desmond is raising a stink about this. He says, and the reality is we will see this type of tax more and more as public ridership continues to decrease and lose billions of dollars. Instead of allowing the market to dictate the conditions, the government is obsessed with punishing the majority who drive to pay for the few that, that, that take public transit. And he goes on to say, government agendas should not be used to change behavior by taxing us into fixed rail trains and buses. Instead, changing behavior, cust- instead of changing behavior, customer entities should incentivize technology and innovation. Government should embrace what most people are already choosing and make it cleaner, safer, and more efficient. Well, not a hundred percent on board with you here, sir. Um, I like this um, his angle because. It's kind of like tariffs. Remember, I talked about tariffs benefit the few at the expense of the many. Well, that's what this these congestion fee uh, uh, congestion taxes are all about, of taxing the few excuse me, taxing the many who drive cars to benefit the very few that choose to take mass transit. And yeah, look forward to innovation. Look forward to technology. You know, the future, I think, is driverless cars. I think the future is is that we don't own cars, or very few of us own cars, that we just hail a driverless car that takes us where we want to go. It's almost transportation as a subscription. You see software as a subscription right now. I think transportation is going in that same direction. Okay, we've got a couple more comments here on the live stream. Let's get everyone involved. And uh, Julie Randolph. Uh, commenting a little bit on social security who I was talking about earlier. And she says, there are a number of programs run by the Social Security Administration. A crawl through the website turns up a mind-boggling amount of detail. I had no idea how many programs there were until Dennis McRoberts spoke at our parents' support group some years back. Yeah, there, there's a lot there. It's not just retirement insurance. I mean, there's disability insurance and there's a lot of other things. But regardless, the program itself is not sustainable. If you just don't touch it, if you're afraid to touch it, at some point, the reserve, the trust fund is going to be empty. Uh, Matt Brandigan on the live stream says, well, we won't be able to call them freeways anymore then. Yeah, you're right. If we're paying a per mile fee, if we're paying a congestion fee to get on the on the freeways, they're no longer free. They become toll roads. Um, now, again, I I'm not in opposition to the idea of toll roads because- you should pay for what you use. And I think there are efficient ways to do toll roads. It's not like you've got to stop every mile and there's a person in a booth and you got to hand them 75 cents and go the next mile and pay more. You know, if you've ever been on the HOV lane down the middle of the 15 freeway, you can have one of those, um, uh, you know, wireless devices um, in your car that will decrement from your account as you drive through. And so it's all electronic. I I like that idea. Um, Because, you know, uh, that way you pay for what you use, and you're not making some people pay more than what they use, and you're not letting other people get away with not paying at all. Um, So we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, Julie Randolph further on the live stream says, thanks to taxpayers, including our family, for extra support provided to adults with development disabilities through SSI. Yeah. So yeah, there is a lot more to social security than just retirement income. But right now, I mean, the the program itself, it just doesn't pencil out. Um, And that's something I think that lawmakers need to do a serious job of. And I think as citizens, we have to be more open to the idea that these programs need to be reformed. Because if they do nothing in the year 2034, the trust fund will be empty and they will only be able to deliver a fraction of the, promi- of the benefits promised. And oh, by the way, that's roughly about the time that I'm going to retire. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've saved for retirement. My wife and I have done a really good plan there. And, you know, we, with social security is one line item in our overall plan. Uh, but it's always been that one light on and we were always, you know, it wasn't a stone cold lock. And it, it's going to be an issue. Um, it's it's something that right now, it don't make fiscal sense. Um, and the more they avoid addressing it, the worse the problem's going to get. All right, um, let's move on down the list. Got a couple more comments. We're going to talk a bit about. The sewage from Tijuana, and there's been some new developments there, and Todd Gloria and San Diego and some of his ideas. Then we'll get to our community forum segment. So let's go here. We'll talk about this demand from San Diego county leaders, mayors, supervisors that are saying we've got a crisis with this Tijuana sewage that's flowing into the ocean, and we got to do something about it. Well, the county board of supervisors. I think, did the right thing here. They declared a state of emergency on this. I think this is terrific. And so the County Board of Supervisors has said, this is something that we've got we've to address. And you know, a state of emergency is mostly symbolic. It's not like they can wave a magic wand and solve the problem. But when you declare it a state of emergency, it gets a lot more attention, a lot more focus. And they're demanding that President Biden fix this. Because, you know, the sewage is coming from Baja, California. It goes into the Tijuana River and it flows north and west into the the United States, into California. And then all that sewage that they dump into the water system in Tijuana ends up going through the river out to the Pacific Ocean and seriously damaging the beaches, not just in Baja, but Imperial Beach and in Coronado. You know, we talked about Coronado Mayor Richard Bailey, this is um, Imperial Beach Mayor Paloma Aguirre on the, on the screen right here, and she's been very vocal about this as well. So members of San Diego's congressional delegation, so those are our five House of Representatives that are here in San Diego County, uh, Congress people. Um, they have approached uh, Biden and urged him to take action on the issue. So here we go. We have congressional representatives, boards of supervisors, mayors that are all saying, come on, man, we got to fix this. Um, and this congressional delegation has secured $300 million to expand a federal wastewater treatment plant in San Diego that treats sewage from Tijuana. Now, this is interesting to me because I know for the longest time they're saying, hey, man, Mexico, you guys gotta fix this. Because ultimately they're the ones that are causing the problem. It's a property rights thing, right? I mean, they're they're damaging the river. And if you know if you're downstream, you get the crap that flows downstream. <laughs> and I mean crap both literally and figuratively. Um, and ultimately that's where the responsibility should be. And yeah, the federal government needs to be handling this with with Mexican officials. But how long has this been going on? I mean, I've been in San Diego since the early 1980s, and I remember hearing about it back then. It's just a problem where people point fingers and nothing ever gets solved. So I kind of like this idea that, you know, control what you can control. You can't, you know, San Diego politicians can't control what happens in Tijuana. Neither can uh, United States politicians. But what they can do is control what comes into America. And I like the idea of maybe they need to build a sewage plant out there to process the water that comes through that river. Now, would that allow the Tijuana um, authorities to essentially abdicate responsibility? Probably. Um, But at some point, you've got to take action here. And if you keep waiting and waiting on federal government officials to fix it, it may never get fixed. But what really caught my attention here is how much this is affecting Imperial Beach and Coronado. So listen to these numbers. The shoreline in Imperial Beach has yet to open this year, and it's almost July. And Coronado has seen its beaches shuttered on and off for weeks on end. And according to Imperial Beach Mayor Paloma Aguirre, who's, who's presented there on the screen, she said... The south end of our beach has been closed as of today for 562 consecutive days. The situation is very dire. 562 consecutive days. It's been closed. The beach is in Imperial Beach, the southern part of it, right there near Friendship Park. Have you ever been out there by Friendship Park? By the way, that's a really cool place. It was closed through most of COVID. I think they're. Hopefully it's now reopened. And by the way, Biden is expanding Trump's border wall at Friendship Park, which to me is nuts. Um, That's a wonderful place where people, it's friendship. People reach across through the fence and shake hands and there have been marriages and all kinds of really neat things that have happened there. And now Biden's making the wall taller and wider and really it won't be a Friendship Park anymore. Sad. Um. But Imperial Beach, the southern part of their, of their beaches, the southern part of their city, have been shut down for like a year and a half. A year and a half. I mean, that's insane. Um, now, U.S. efforts are part of a $474 million binational agreement with Mexico that also includes fixing an array of crumbling water pipes and pumps in Tijuana, as well as a defunct treatment plant on the coast about six miles south of the border. The San Antonio de los Buenos treatment facility has been estimated to spew as much as 35 million gallons of raw sewage into the ocean every day. Every day, 35 million gallons of raw sewage. I mean, holy shit. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, So, you know... It's a typical thing because our, our local leaders don't have control over that area. So what do you do? What's the solution? You know, I, I think it makes sense to declare a state of emergency. The Board of Supervisors did that here in San Diego County. I like that congressional um, leaders from San Diego County are putting pressure on President Biden to fix this. And, you know, Biden's Mr. Infrastructure, right? Now, granted, this should be infrastructure that Mexican officials handle, but they won't. But you know, Mexico is, I mean, there's so much corruption there. I mean, you, if you invested you know, $300 million to build a sewage treatment plant in Tijuana, you'd be lucky if it ever got built. The money would probably be swiped and and grifted and, and be gone. It may come to a point here where Americans just have to simply take control of it and build a facility on that river. And it may make a lot of sense for Imperial Beach and Coronado to be the leaders of that effort because they're the ones that are most impacted by the whole thing. So keep an eye on that. I I think this is an interesting story. Okay, um, one last topic before we get to the San Diego Community Forum. Again, we welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Just type them in on Facebook or on YouTube. And I want to briefly talk about Todd Gloria. And, you know, Todd Gloria is the, the mayor of San Diego. And this guy is an interesting dude. He's another very, very another political animal, you know, because he's now Mister Hardcore on homelessness, but he used to be Mister Easy Guy on homelessness, and now he's cracking down. And you know, you're not sure which direction the wind's blowing with him. And I, you know, no doubt the guy's going to likely look for another opportunity for higher office. I mean, he's already been in the state assembly. I think he might have been on the city council at one time. That um, at any rate he's decided to spend $3 million for this design event that's coming to San Diego County. And it's called the world design capital um, designation that San Diego won. And that means that they get to host this event. um, That's going to be cooperative San Diego, Tijuana for this world design capital distinction and mayor Todd Gloria. And a lot of people in San Diego were all for this, you know, because it's a prestigious award and and by having some kind of, a, of a, an event here, a conference here, you know, of course, that invites people into San Diego that drives the economy, more people in the hotels, more people in the restaurants. And that's really good for our economy, right? Well, in the beginning, he said, well, I'm, I'm not going to, we're not going to put any tax dollars to it. Well, now they saw that other cities around the world that had hosted this event had put in tax dollars and they got so-called a return on investment because there was enough tax revenue that came in that offset the amount of money the city put in. And they thought that was a good thing. And so now San Diego is putting in $3 million to to make this happen. Now, meanwhile, we talked extensively about how the roads in San Diego and many communities, including Rancho Bernardo, especially, are just crap. Now, granted, they're, they're rebuilding a lot of the roads in Westwood. There's been some improvement. Um... But there's still that giant sinkhole in, in, on Escala Drive and Rancho Bernardo. Carmel Mountain Road and Ted Williams Parkway continue to be disasters. This is where that money should be going. You know, it might you might think, oh, well, it's good that they're, they're putting money into this event, and it's going to generate all these visitors to San Diego, and they're going to fill in our hotels. But think about that. Where does that tax—I mean, already our tax dollars from San Diego citizens— are going into the fund to pay for things like roads. But instead they want to divert it. They essentially want to provide a It's like a corporate welfare scheme so that they can kind of grease the system to get more tourists in the town so they can tax the tourists. I mean, b- besides the fact that that's taxation without representation, you know, the transit occupancy tax, it's still a cockamamie idea Because it's almost like thinking of government as a business. You know, that's how they're seeing this. Well, if we tax them this amount and we can invest this amount and we'll come out net positive. I mean, to me, that's not how government should work. I mean, government should handle roads and infrastructure and safety like police and fire and generally kind of protect our rights, but they don't need to be investing in conferences and tourism and all these other things. Let the businesses do that. If the hotels think they're going to get a huge return on investment by promoting an event in San Diego, let the hotels and restaurants and the rental car companies do that. Don't try to shift that burden to San Diego taxpayers. I mean, and frankly, they really even should have shifted a lot of that burden. I mean, if you want to shift the burden to the actual people that are coming here, well, don't do it through a tax, just bundle it into the price that they pay for hotels rather than making it a tax. That's how they see this whole system. And to me, it's like a scheme. But in the end, it's like, Todd Gloria, man, what are you doing? This is an opportunity here for you, I think, to stand up for what's right for San Diego and invest the money in San Diego for San Diegans. But instead, he wants to use the money to attract people from outside of San Diego to spend money with corporate interests in San Diego. I mean, come on, man, <laughs> what are you doing? So uh, put the money into roads, man, that's what we need. That's what we really need. Um, and yeah, I know in the whole scheme of things, San Diego city budget, 3 million bucks isn't very much. I think their city budget, is it 2 billion? It's something like that. It's So this is just like a fraction of 1%. But still, the point is what are you doing? (laughs) And on top of it, he's flip-flopped on this, you know, which I think makes him look very unprincipled. What do you think? Okay. Um, wow. So much going on here. Um, how far are we into this? We're 57 minutes in. Um, you know, I normally do these podcasts Wednesday at 12 noon. That's my goal. And sometimes I'm a little late. I got started a little bit late today. Um, I missed last week. I need to do it more often. But I'll tell you what, when I do these live streams, I get a nice live stream audience. And thank you for those of you that are watching right now. I appreciate your support and your and your viewing. Uh, but I get so much more traffic on, on um, how I post this content online in the form of YouTube shorts and YouTube clips and Instagram posts and everything else. I take this hour, hour and a half podcast. And I repurpose it in so many different ways. And it just works really well. But I love doing the live stream because it gets people involved. Okay. Let's uh, let's go to our San Diego community forum um, and take a look at what some of the people are saying out there. And this is from Craig Foreman on our YouTube channel, talking about the Poway Unified School District and the potential for another billion dollar bond. And he said, one solution is to exercise eminent domain on the so-called billion-dollar bonds issued many years ago. Yes, eminent domain can be used on contracts and bonds, and is not limited to eminent domain related to real estate. Wow, <laughs> I mean, I, I and I, he and I had a little bit of a back and forth on the YouTube channel commenting on this. I didn't know that. That you know when when. I was a candidate for school board in 2014. We were trying to find ways to solve the problem because those bonds are not callable, which means the, these uh, capital appreciation bonds are not callable, it means they can't be refinanced. And so Poway Unified School District is essentially stuck. They borrowed roughly $100 million and are paying it back with roughly 100 excuse me, with $1 billion, a 10 to 1 ratio. And and by the way, it didn't solve all their infrastructure needs, and now they want to go back to the well, and they're talking about a bond that could easily be over a billion dollars. The last one they tried was around half a billion. But it's interesting that eminent domain might be a solution, which would mean that the government could seize these bonds as property. The government could seize these school bonds, but they have to pay market value for them. And the market value of these bonds is pretty good because it's guaranteed income. So I'm not sure if this is a solution to the problem. It might give them a little more control over the problem and then give them the ability to to maybe refinance it because they would then own the bond. But eminent domain just in general is something that I have a really hard time with because you're essentially coercing someone to give up their property. And yeah, sure, you're going to pay them money, but it's still not right. It's still not right to take from people what's theirs, even if it's for some worthy cause. I mean, normally you think of eminent domain to make room for freeways, but now eminent domain is being used to make room for shopping malls and business parks. And that's when it really goes beyond the scope of what it's intended, uh, intention. And I already think using it for freeways is bad enough, but using it for a shopping mall, which they, that happened in Connecticut terrible. Using it for school bonds? Interesting idea. Okay, here's another comment. This is from Patrick Johnson talking about the idea of the city of Poway appointing a replacement for Barry Leonard, our resigning, uh, con- uh, our resigning councilman. And the proposal by the city, which they move forward on, is they're going to appoint a replacement, not have an election, but make that person that gets the appointment take a pledge not to run in 2024, you know, which essentially is the advantage of incumbency. And Pat Johnson says, a pledge or a written guarantee, pledges can be broken, should be in a written guarantee, yet again a shady deal. Well I agree, Pat. I mean I I know what they they their intent is is that in the application to be considered for an appointment, there would be a a checkbox and a signature line pledging that you wouldn't run for re-election in November of 2024. Now, that sounds nice, but really on legal grounds, I don't know how that's legal um, because elections are supposed to be free, right? I mean, everyone should be allowed to run in elections and you're basically excluding people from running in an election. I mean, that on its uh, face is anti-democratic, To say nothing of the fact that the appointment itself is anti-democratic because you're not having an election to put the person in office in the first place. Um, To me, I I just thought this was sort of a a political pragmatism kind of way of getting out of it. They didn't have to have the election right away. They didn't have to spend money on a special election, about $300,000, less than 1% of the city's annual budget. And- They can still do the appointment and put in one of their people that they support. The city council can still get away with getting people that they want rather than who the voters want and still allow the election to happen in 2024. I mean, I I just thought it was a slippery, you know, you say a shady deal, Pat, I kind of agree. Um, Go to the next comment here, and this is about my uh, piece I did recently about the potential of former L.A. Dodger Steve Garvey running for for California senator as a Republican, which caught my attention because I like politics and I like sports, and this is sort of a merger of the two. And Steve Garvey, of course, played for the Padres, and his number is retired by the Padres, which is a point of contention amongst Padre fans. And and Dana says, he just needs to run in East County. They voted for an indicted criminal. They'll vote for any Republican. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, in East County, uh, demographically very GOP, no doubt about it. But, you know, even even in East County, the Republican majority is eroding. Um, more and more turf is becoming blue or going from red to purple, in other cases, going from purple to blue. Uh, could the Garve win in East County? Well, granted, he's running for a statewide position as California senator, but it's a fun idea. Now, I got another comment here, and uh, this is from R.P. Damson. And, you know, I, I commented about how, you know, Garvey was considering running for for a senator about 30 years ago, you know, because he retired from baseball in, I think, 87. And in the late 80s, early 90s, he was kicking around the idea because he's Mr. Clean Cut, Straight Arrow, you know, Boy Scout. And uh, at least that was his brand image. But then we later found out he was having affairs and he got involved in a lot of other criminal issues and, and he got basically, you know, eliminated in the court of public opinion from being a candidate. But I was still talking about him as a potential candidate because it, we're in the age of Trump, where it seems like ethics don't matter to voters. And R.P. Damson says to me, so you're saying ethics don't matter any longer? You seem to support his running. Thus, I'm concluding, if you can't beat him, join him. No, I don't support him. Not at all. (laughs) Um, I just found the story interesting uh, because, A, I'm a sports fan and, and it's a sports and politics. And the Garvey played for, you know, the San Diego Padres, including our rival Dodgers. But the other part of it is, is I've commented a lot how California is overwhelmingly Democratic and has become more and more Democrat. As the and, and we saw, you know, Orange County is becoming more red and San Diego County is becoming more red. So even if Garvey decided to run, he doesn't have a chance. I mean, there's just no way. Um, you know, who, who else is running? Adam Schiff, uh, Katie Porter, um, Barbara Lee. <laughs> all three of them are leftists to varying degrees. Adam Schiff might be the most centrist of all of them. Um, but, yeah, if Garvey ran, he'd never win. But I know he's kind of, you know, checking the, which way the, uh, the wind is blowing. Another comment on this one, on the same story. This is from uh, Tam R&R, and he said, Democratic, not Democrat, John. I thought you should know this. Yeah, I think in that in this video short I did, it was like a 60-second video, and I was commenting about how California is becoming more Democrat and... San Diego County, more Democrat, you know, referring to the party. But a lot of Democrats, they insist this, no, it's the Democratic Party, not the Democrat Party. Because usually people will say Republicans and Democrats, and I just kind of got into the flow of saying it that way. You know, by the way, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm independent. I'm no party preference, because I don't like either one of them. But It's interesting now that I'm seeing more of this objection, like it's some sort of a, quote, tell that you are a Trump supporter or something like that if you refer to them as Democrat Party. That's kind of an odd one, but I'm starting to see some chirping about that on social media. And um, here's one more comment in the San Diego Community Forum. This is from Meg Grote, and she said, and she's talking about homelessness in Poway. You know, Poway enacted a ban on homeless encampments. And San Diego, by the way, just recently passed a similar law. And basically, it is that if you're, if you're homeless and you're setting up a tent or whatever, and you're on the sidewalk or on public right of way or on any other public land, you can be removed if there are available beds in shelters that are nearby. Which, by the way, I don't know if there are any shelters nearby Poway, but I mean, that's a whole other topic. But she said, I need shelters. So I guess Meg is homeless. She says, I need shelters. They need actual places to live. How is a person supposed to get their life together if they have to worry about getting into a shelter in time coming home from work? Yeah, that's a fair point. Now, there are a lot of people that are homeless. Um, Meg is homeless as well. Now, Meg must have a computer or a smartphone responding to YouTube messages, which goes to show you that people that are homeless aren't completely destitute. Um, They have income and they have some modern conveniences, even rudimentary. But in the end, I'm conceptually okay with this idea that you can't just set up a tent anywhere on public property or on the sidewalk. Because there are rules about how those public lands should be used. I can't go down the street and set up a tent in front of my neighbor's home on their sidewalk. That would be wrong. It would be invasive. And it's not my land in the first place. I don't have permission for whomever owns that land, even if it's government land. But the other point of this is, is, yeah, they have to have a place they can go. Now, are they going to have more shelters available? I know they're really trying to ramp that up. But that's slow coming. The County Board of Supervisors, and I even think some cities, are buying old motels, converting them into shelter for the homeless. Is that a good solution? Debatable. Might be good short-term, but does it provide a long-term solution? I don't know. Todd Gloria had an idea of partitioning off a portion of Balboa Park where camping in tents would be legal. I kind of like that idea. Um, that makes sense to me uh, because you, if you're going to remove homeless from certain areas, you have to have a place where they can go. Otherwise, it's like whack-a-mole. You, know, you, you move them from one area and they pop up somewhere else. And that's not really a sustainable solution. Now, one other idea I heard, and I think was it the city or the county, the city of San Diego or the county of San Diego had vacant county buildings, office buildings, And using those as a temporary place for homeless. I like that idea as well. Because the building's just sitting there unoccupied. They could use it for that. That's a good idea. Um, uh, Zones where camping is legal, that's a good idea too. There was one other proposal that was being kicked around by Bill Walton and a nonprofit here. I think it was called the, is it the Lazy Duck Foundation? Something like that. About trying to get the federal government to partition off an area of Miramar Marine Corps station just east of the 15 and making that open for camping and then providing more services and amenities that nonprofits or other agencies could provide to help these people get on their feet, get counseling for addiction and mental health issues, maybe get transportation to jobs. You know, our unemployment rate is just so darn low that there should be opportunity for these folks to get back on their feet if they want to get back on their feet and if they have the ability to kind of start from a stable position i mean it's i mean it's one thing you know according to meg here in the um comments about trying to get a job and then get back to your shelter and all that but it's got to be even worse when you've got all of your worldly possessions every last little thing you own in a tent somewhere in downtown San Diego, I would imagine most of those people are unwilling to go very far away from their tent because that's all they have. You know, if they converted some of these office buildings, the vacant government-owned office buildings, then people could secure their possessions and lock the door. They might have to share it with a few other people. That's like a step in the right direction. But in the end, in my opinion, and I will ag- agree with Richard Bailey on this, the Coronado mayor, who's now gonna run for county supervisor, that our politicians and the policies they put forward for years and years, for decades and decades, have what is what caused the homeless problem in the first place. Most people are homeless because they can't afford rent or they lost their home in foreclosure and they can't afford another place why is housing so expensive in San Diego? Well, on one hand, it's because so many people want to live here. The demand is high. It's a great place to live. But for so long, we've had limits in the amount of development. We've had NIMBYs, not in my backyard, saying, no, don't build that farm in Poway. Leave it as a golf course or leave it as vacant land. We don't want more development on Poway Road. We don't want more development in Rancho Penasquitos or at the Merge 56. We don't want more development in Oceanside, Escondido, Carlsbad, La Mesa, El Cajon, Imperial Beach. Every city is going through this. And local citizens put up a big kerfuffle about blocking development. Or if development is allowed, they don't allow high-density development. Because there are all these regulations for the size of apartments and the number of parking spaces you have to have, and all these limits, the height limits as well, that disincentivize multifamily housing. And as a result, there's not enough supply to meet demand and pricing goes sky high. And that's why a lot of people are homeless. And, and sure, there's an addiction issue. There are mental health issues. It's almost a chicken and egg. What comes first? Were they... Were they um, sober and of healthy mind, then became homeless and then became an addict and then began to have health a mental health crisis? Or was it the other way around? Were they an addict with mental health issues that ended up losing their job and losing their place to live because they couldn't stay there any longer? That's a debatable point. And I think you have to have the ability to solve the problem along both tracks. And I think that's one of the things that Jim Desmond was saying is that housing first doesn't solve the problem. You have to have all these other services as well, and you do. But ultimately, the problem was caused years, decades ago by preventing development. Because if we had more supply, prices would be lower. If we had more supply of apartments, more supply of condos, then people would... Move up. First time home buyers would buy those, and then less expensive apartments and less expensive rental houses would become available. Some people say, well, all they want to do is build homes for the rich. And they do. That's where a lot of the new home development goes. But that means then middle income people or upper middle class people can move into those homes, which frees up middle income households throughout the county the middle income people can buy or lower middle income people can upgrade into as their career develops which opens up more housing at the low end there's a cascading effect here they need to build more but that's not going to solve the problem overnight i mean they got it that's going to take it took us years and decades to get to this mess it's going to take a long time for them to build more, to build enough supply, and because they're getting resistance at every step of the way. They're getting resistance in Mira Mesa and in University Town Center for making those communities more high-rise, more urban. And that's going to continue to go on and on, all this resistance. Now, the good news is, from my point of view, is the NIMBYs are not as successful as they used to be. In fact, even Gavin Newsom and the Democrats in Sacramento are now yimbies. Yes, in my backyard. Todd Gloria has talked about that, too. Democrats are coming around. Here in Poway, there's more development going on. Now, the way it's happening in Poway, there's a lot of money in politics and money being spent for and against certain You know, candidates for mayor and city council to try to get those people to pass laws to expand or restrict housing, and it becomes all distorted. That part is not healthy. That part is dysfunctional. But the fact that they're building more, I think ultimately is good. And I think, what did I hear? Was it a 70,000 unit shortage in San Diego County? Don't quote me on that number, but it was an astronomical number of the number of housing units we were in a deficit in San Diego County. And so, you know, some argue is the is Sacramento delivering housing mandates to require cities to expand housing. Some people say that's happening, some people say it's not happening. But it's clear that we're seeing more affordable housing being mandated in various cities. But even a f- so-called affordable housing, housing that is essentially discounted because it's subsidized by taxpayers or it's subsidized by other Homebuyers, you know, like if a developer has a 20-unit development and they, they partition one or two of them off as low income, well, that just means the other 18 become more expensive. It's just a shell game. It doesn't solve the problem. And one or two affordable housing units ain't solving the problem. There needs to be a massive, widespread housing construction to go on through this county. And yeah, that means the suburban communities like UTC and Mira Mesa might become more urban. That means that semi-rural communities like Poway had been historically, the city in the country, which is now very suburban since the 1980s and 90s, all that development. But there's still a need for more development. Will Poway become, you know, continue to trend in the direction of urban? I think it will. If you look at Poway Road, that's true. And we talked a little bit about e-bikes to start this podcast. And e-bikes are kind of part of that whole process of making the road safer and getting people to and fro in kind of interesting ways. That's good. That's progress. But a lot of people just want to hit the pause button and freeze time. And so we can have our own city the way it used to be when I bought in 1972, or pick your, your date from mr peabody's Wayback machine that ain't realistic when when population continues to grow and continues to increase and oh by the way more people is good <laughs> people are shrieking about overpopulation not just in san diego but worldwide more people is good more people means more product productivity more people means more innovation more new ideas to solve problems And that's what leads to having desalination plants and wastewater reclamation recycling plants. That's what leads to more technology innovation, more people, more minds, more brain power and more labor to make things happen, to make our economy better. That's why I'm also a proponent for more immigration. I think we need that as well. Okay, Um, There we are. This is the John Riley Project episode 324. If you enjoyed watching, if you enjoyed listening, and, and you'd like to support what we're doing, you can go to my website, johnrileyproject.com, and I have a donate page there, and you can make a contribution. Maybe you want to donate five bucks, ten bucks. Maybe you want to donate a hundred bucks a month. You know, there's another podcaster that I listen to, and I subscribe totally voluntary. It's not a condition to get his content. But I I give him 25 bucks a month because I like what he does and I want to encourage him to do more. If you feel the same way, you could do the same thing. Go to johnreillyproject.com. In the menu, there's a donate button. I was alerted by Julie, who was on our live stream today, that... It wasn't working recently. Well, it's working now. So if you'd like to be a supporter, I would greatly appreciate it and uh, would love to get your support. And I'd use that money just to promote the podcast and continue to grow the audience and make this a a better product we can all enjoy, because this is meant to be a community forum where we talk about local issues in San Diego County and uh, offer our thoughts and comments on a lot of the local news, because there's not enough coverage of local news. And that's what I like to provide here. Okay friends, this is episode 324 of the John Riley podcast, John Riley Project. Thanks for listening, thanks for watching. We'll catch you next Wednesday, hopefully at 12 noon. We'll see you later. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend. Or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.